0: Welcome to the New Freedom Church podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. So this year we declared to be the year of the good news here at New Freedom Church. And the good news is what the gospel is all about. We say the word gospel, but many times I think we miss exactly what this means. And the gospel is simply this. Jesus Christ, God's only son, came to earth, lived, suffered, and died, was buried in a tomb. On the third day, he rose again, launching a new creation, inviting all of us, whosoever will, to be part of that new creation. He initiated, inaugurated his kingdom and we are awaiting the consummation of his kingdom when Christ will come again. That is good gospel news. Let's put our hands together for that. And we have been looking at the gospel writers, accounts according to men who walked with Jesus, knew Jesus, people who uh, I guess would would have given a a biography look at what the life of Jesus was all about. And we've been looking at the gospel according to the apostle Luke. And in Luke, we we see some unexpected things. And how many realize that life, life is full of unexpecteds. Life is full of things that maybe just didn't seem to turn out the way that we thought they would. Life is also full of what I would call paradoxes. A paradox is something that turns out different than what you anticipated. Like you were on the edge of your seat thinking that it's going to turn out one way, and a paradox means it simply turns out another way. Well, today in the 10th chapter of Luke, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there because I want us to look at a seeming paradox, an unexpected. You know, a good story has a little bit of a plot twist. If you can figure it out the whole way, you really are not that interested there are, there are some, some movies that you watch or maybe some, some channels this time of year uh, coming up with all these specials and there's really one theme and it's boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, the small town person comes back from the big city. Come on, some of you have watched these same, this same movie time and time again. You know the outcome of it. I'm not gonna tell you what channel it is. I'm not knocking Hallmark. Oh, I mean, <laughs> but right now we We're in that season where you can just about anticipate how the story is going to end. But today I want to share with you a plot twist. This is a paradox, a difference in the way that we think something is going to turn out and the way that it actually turns out. And this is how I I just so appreciate the teaching of Jesus. Somehow in our human condition, we climb a mountain of life of success, we get to the top. And we expect that we're always gonna stay there. Now we know if we've lived long enough that we're gonna go back into a valley, but somehow we trick our mind to think that we're gonna stay right here at this mountaintop experience. And yet we all know that there is yet another trial to be faced, another test to be encountered. And Luke starts out the 10th chapter and, and we see Jesus having commissioned his 70 apostles. There are 70 that went out. He sent them out two by two. They come back and they're rejoicing at all of the great ministry success. They had these reports to tell Jesus that, Jesus, you sent us out, you commissioned us, and even the demons tremble at your name. We were able to heal the sick. We were able to cast out demons. We were able to see all these mighty miraculous things happen, and they're, they're really giving a progress report to Jesus about how that they were well-trained and now they are doing the work of an apprentice. And that's what a Christ-like one should do. If you are a Christian, a Christ-like one, you're apprenticing after Jesus and therefore the works that he has done, we will do and greater. We have the ability, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us. So the apostles had this, this amount of success and it says that Jesus even was rejoicing in their success. And just on the heels of that, there comes this, this occasion that there is a, a question followed by a story, and really, we see in this a test. Look at uh, verse 25. Verse 25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, watch the, the initial question is a good question. It's a sound and a solid question. It's one that really begs an answer. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you have ever been in line for receiving something that you didn't work yourself for that, that you knew was just going to come by grace or by favor and inheritance, you want to certainly make sure that you're in the room when the will is read. And so this guy is saying, when I die. I know that there is an afterlife. I know that this life that I'm living is not the only life that there is. And when I die, how then shall I inherit eternal life? This is his question, and I think this is an age-old question that all of us ask. Regardless of the age of life, we all have this wondering, what is this life really about? And is there more? Is there something beyond the grave? And so he asked Jesus, what must I do to be in line for an inheritance the inheritance not just of any kind of treasure but of eternal life and verse 26 he said to him what is written in the law and what is your reading of it so jesus is going back to this man's understanding of the scriptures the old testament holy scriptures he's saying what does it say about eternal life there and what is your interpretation how does you how do you read it verse 27 so he answered and said You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. There are four aspects of loving God that he mentions here. And all these aspects are what we find throughout the, the story, the great narrative of God's people, Israel, all the way through from wilderness wanderings, to triumph, to tragedy, to kingdoms, to destruction, to triumph again. And we see this woven all throughout the scriptures, that in order to maintain a presence with God, you have to love him with your heart, your soul, your strength, and all of your mind. So the lawyer recites this to Jesus, but he doesn't stop there because then he goes a little step further and he says, and your neighbor as yourself. So love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. This is the same question that was asked in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, and in both of these other occasions of gospel writings, Jesus himself answers the question. This time, Jesus asked the attorney, asked the lawyer to answer the question. And so in verse 28, Jesus says to him, now in in my Bible, these words are in red. It means that these are uh, attributed to Jesus' words. Jesus says to this lawyer, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. So that should have been good enough. Case closed, right? The lawyer just won his ultimate argument and he got validation of his answer, his right answer from Jesus. That would be a pretty good day in my estimation. How about you? Jesus just validated this guy's right answer. Now look at verse 29. This is how you know that lawyers have not changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. Because he should have quit while he was ahead. He should have sat down, let the jury decide because he was going to win the case. But it says here, verse 29, but he wanting to justify himself. (laughs) So so he just wants to score some more points. He wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Jesus. And by the way, who is my neighbor? The first question was about how do I enter eternal life? He answers appropriately. Actually, he recites the scriptures and the same answer that Jesus himself gave in two other gospel accounts. So apparently this attorney had been following Jesus throughout his wanderings for three and a half years of teaching in the towns and the villages. I I just have the, the notion to think that this guy was probably in the fan club of Jesus. At least he was, he was in the, maybe the frenemy club. You know, you got friends and you got enemies and then you got frenemies. They're the ones that look like friends, but they might be enemies. You just really don't know. And so this guy was following Jesus. I put him in the frenemy club because he wasn't quite sure, but he wanted to have the right answers. Talked a couple weeks ago about the difference between orthodoxy, believing the right things and orthopraxy, practicing the right things. Do you know that you can believe the right things and yet still practice wrong living? You can have a lot of head knowledge about God. And I would say most people that miss heaven, miss heaven over one foot, 12 inches from their head to their heart. They know the right things. They've recited the right answers. They've recorded it all right, but out of the heart, they have never lived the gospel centered God kingdom type of life that enters them into eternal life. And so this man wanting to justify himself asked Jesus a follow-up question by which we find the test. Really it's a trap. And who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus, as Jesus always does, Jesus is way too smart to just simply answer this guy's question back to him. He asked him to consider a story. And here's what Jesus often does in our lives. When we pray uh, so diligently to God for that, that one answer, that one thing. Have you ever just prayed and you say, God, just give me this answer. And he gives you a direct download exactly what you need to hear every single time, right? You're so close to God that you always know the exact instruction, exactly what to do, right? No, wrong, you don't. Many times when you pray to God, you will receive something back that is almost an enigma, something that almost needs a code breaking of it. Like, like God tells you to get up and to, do, to take a step of obedience somewhere or to challenge you to do something you've never done. And you're like, God, w- w- that doesn't have anything to do with my prayer. God, me going and serving somebody in the, the nearby area that, that you have uh, directed me doesn't have anything to do with my immediate need right now. And here's what Jesus does to this guy is he turns the tables a little bit. And instead of answering directly his question, Jesus tells a story. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. This man was assaulted. He was robbed. He was mugged. He was beaten and he was left for dead. You get the picture, right? So a man goes down, he's, he's traveling. He gets accosted, assaulted, mugged, left for dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So the priest comes, sees the man in need, looks at the man, realizes, I'm not getting involved in that. That's none of my business. And he passes by, goes all the way to the other side of the road, as if not even to see the man in need, the priest passes by. We get it. Likewise, a Levite who when he arrived to the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. So he at least investigated it a little bit, but realized, you know what? I don't want to get my hands dirty in this. This is somebody else's matter. I'm not going to go there. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever you spend, when I come back, so he is coming back, he's going to help him again. When I come back, I'll repay you. Now Jesus asked this guy a question. Jesus is now interrogating the interrogator. He is questioning the lawyer. Verse 36, so which of these three do you think was neighbor? Look at, look at how the text reads. So which of these three do you think was neighborly, was neighbor, was in the, the verb form of actively doing neighborship, neighborly stuff? Which of these do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? At this point, I think the attorney is feeling a little bit of sweat on his brow. <laughs> I think he's realizing that he is just about to step into a snare and the trap that he set has been sprung, and Jesus isn't in the trap, but he yet has to answer because the crowd is watching him. You ever seen two titans kind of do battle? They're dueling. This is like a public duel that is happening verbally through questions and story. In verse 37, he said to him, him who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The second validation, the man asked two questions. Jesus validated both of his answers, but maybe for different reasons than what the man actually wanted. And so the original question was eternal life. The follow-up question actually contained a loophole. It was, then who is my neighbor? And this is an age-old case, an example of doing the minimum that we have to do in order to gain the reward. So much in our culture, so much in our own society, you can separate it 2,000 years if you want, but it's a human condition that we just want the minimum entrance requirements. Just tell me what is the least I have to do. I'll do that. I'm not about to go above and beyond that. That's kind of the, the, the heart matter, the concept that's happening here. And so this attorney is testing Jesus and an easy test I will submit to you is not a good test. An easy test doesn't prove very much. But a quality test, that's going to be a bit difficult. And this test was actually a love test. And I'm going to tell you today that your love will be tested. You will be tested in the area of love. Love with parents, love with siblings, love with relationships of friends, love with coworkers, love with spouse, love with children, love with the people that look different than you, that sound different than you, who vote different than you, who go to different churches than you. You will be tested in the love area all throughout your life. This initial question had two correct answers, but it actually had three parts. So he said, love the Lord God. And there's four categories of love for God. But then he said, love your neighbor, how? As yourself. So there's three ways that you're going to go into this way of eternal life. You're gonna love God, but then you have to have some semblance of care, compassion, understanding of you, some love for yourself. Now we, we live in a culture where we look around and we think that people are so self-absorbed, they just love themselves to death. And some seemingly love themselves to death, but I would submit to you that actually there is a lack of self-love in those who only want to get what they want. Amen. They don't truly understand that your deepest desire is not your strongest desire, says John Mark Comer. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but this... this This desire to just get what we want is not really deep down what we want. What we really want deep down is we want satisfying and life-giving relationships. And the way to get that is not by always getting your way, but sometimes it's surrendering and yielding so that others get ahead. It's applauding somebody else's success on their way up instead of trying to tear them all down. Yeah, you may do good at throwing stones and tearing somebody down, but at the end, when they're down there in the mud and the dirt with you, you really don't feel that good about that. But if you can look back over your life and you can say, I helped this one into a life of faith. I helped that one solve a problem. I was able to be a little bit of grease on the track to help their train go a little faster into a place like that is when you sit back and with satisfaction, you say, because I've helped other people, then what I've always desired has really always come to me as well. So you have to love others as you love yourself. If you find somebody who doesn't love others very well, it's because they have a problem with them. The way that they treat others bad speaks more about them than it does the person they're treating bad. Can I hear no me? (laughs) It really does. And so the, the answer here is found in doing what is not so obvious to do. And he says, who then is my neighbor? Now, this lawyer is a Pharisee. And a good lawyer, they tell me, never asks a question unless he thinks he knows the answer already. And I would tell you that I think this lawyer was confident he knew the answer before he ever asked it. And that's exactly why he asked it. He was looking for a loophole because in his mind and in his ethic, in in the day he lived, he presumed that those that were his neighbor, get this, According to first century Jewish ethic, those who are your neighbor is not the person who lives next door. And I would tell you that even to this day, those who are your neighbor are not necessarily the people who live on your street. But according to his ethic, those who were his neighbor were also God-fearing, God-honoring, observant, well-practiced Jews. So in other words, his neighbors were the people who, walked like him, talked like him, went to synagogue like him, were trained like him. They fit the mold of what it meant to be a first century good practicing Jew. So when he asked Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? He expected that the ethic that Jesus being a good rabbi would apply would be, well, of course, your neighbor are those of your ethnicity, those of your, your, your tribe, those of your traveling group, people that you affiliate with. That's who your neighbor is. So in other words, Do good to those who do good to you. Does that ring true with the scriptures? I find in Jesus' words that he says, do good to those even when they persecute and revile you and speak all manner of evil against you. For then your reward will be great in heaven. What good, Jesus says, is it if you do good to those who only love you back. And we tend to limit love to likeness. If you're like me, then I can love you. If you're not like me, I have a real difficult time loving you. Thanks be to God that when I was lost and undone without God or his son, Jesus reached way down and found me. When I didn't look like him, think like him, act like him, he found me in that place and he found you there too. If you're honest, that's where he found us. But we tend to limit our love to likeness. If you fit my mold, if you don't disagree with me, then we can walk together. Because after all, the Bible says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Well, we take, we take scriptures out of context. We contort, we twist. What we need to do is we need to get to a place where there is empathy, compassion to understand why is it you're here? What happened to you that got you in this fix? And this is what Jesus is teaching in this text 2,000 years ago, and he teaches it to us right here Today, Jesus answers the actual question with the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, Samaritan is a term that we know well in our culture. We even have Good Samaritan laws. A Good Samaritan is a person who does something for someone else without expectation of repayment. That's a Good Samaritan. We we kind of understand the ethic of a a Good Samaritan. If you are in a, a medical field, you know that there are certain laws that protect you while you're off duty. If you're a nurse, you're a doctor, you're EMS, paramedic, you're you're a practitioner, that if you're off duty and you get that call, you're flying on an airplane with your family and you get that call over the, the loudspeaker, is there a doctor on board? You're not on duty, you're on your way to vacation. But if you get that call, you know, based on Good Samaritan laws, and according to your oath, your Hippocratic oath, that you shall do no harm, you know that you can spring into action without fear of reprisal, that even if whatever medical treatment that you assess and quickly give doesn't work out, you at least tried because you were being what? A Good Samaritan. You know that as a a citizen, that you can spring into action just to help somebody, We live uh, in in, in a place where there's an intersection and and I was out the other, other night taking out the trash and I heard this loud screech and then a boom. And I knew that the most likely thing that happened was an accident, a car accident. It was probably at the flashing light just right there on 122 and 48. And so I headed through the house, grabbed my flashlight. Carson came following. We wanted to see what was happening. We wanted to see the action. And sure enough, we went to that flashing light and there was already a crowd gathered and there were people that were watching as this young driver crossed the, the intersection and a, a motorcycle was coming the other direction and turned his motorcycle over. Everybody ended up being just fine, thanks, thanks to God. But they were shook up. There, there was a little bit of a, a, you know, calamity at the scene. And yet what was amazing was that all of these neighbors had come out of their house to see if they could offer help. What were they doing? They were being good Samaritans. None of them were going to get in trouble for helping, one flagging down the traffic, another waiting for EMS to get there, someone else attending, giving water to the people who were uh, laying in the road. A guy had a a towel on him that someone had brought. So all of these people sprung in. What caused them to do that? Why, Why didn't they just look out the window and say, oh, there's another accident, and go back to the recliner? There's something on the inside of us that we realize that the people living next door are not necessarily the only neighbors that we have, but the people who are in need the most we have to neighbor them and this is what this lawyer failed to recognize but he's not the only one and Jesus illustrates the point by showing him some characters in his life that he would very well respect and here's what Jesus says a certain man went down and was mugged he was robbed he was beaten left for dead we assume with the story that this certain man was probably a Jew, but not likely one of high esteem. He probably was not well known in the community. He may have been from a poor family. But Jesus is using this to illustrate how that there are three people who passed by. First was the priest. Remember the story? It says the priest passed by, and when he saw that this man was mugged, was robbed, and was laying there ready to die... He didn't want to get involved and he passes by on the other side of the road. And sometimes what you and I do, the easiest thing to do is just to look the other way. Why get involved? Why get my hands dirty? Why come out at 10 o'clock at night in the dark, go to an intersection? Why try to help somebody? That is going to cost me time, energy, attention. I may see something I don't want to see. I may have an image on my mind of blood and gore that I don't want to have there. So I will just stay put. The priest did the very thing. He just walked on the other side of the road as though nothing ever happened. Then it says a Levite came through. Now, a priest would be like a pastor, a modern day pastor, a modern day apostle, somebody who was was very high up, probably professional clergy. So let's call the priest professional clergy. The professional clergy in Jesus' story, they don't get very high marks, do they? They just pass by the other side. Now, the Levite would be somebody who is close to the things of God, likely a church member, maybe a lay minister. The Levite is, is in Jewish context, someone who ministered in the house of God. Their family was part of a certain uh, community of faith. And so the Levite comes and he investigates, he looks at the scene, he sees that the guy is hurt. But then in the back of his mind, he must think something like this. Well, if this was a legit case of a guy being in trouble, I just watched my pastor walk on the other side. So surely the pastor would have taken care of it. And this is the mindset of so many in the American church today is that, well, if there's a problem, surely our pastors, our professional clergy, that's what we pay them for anyway. Let them do the work of the ministry, right? That's our mindset. But the Bible tells us that the professional clergy's job is to build up the ecclesia, the called out, the assembly, the church, You know, this building is not the church. It is a church facility, but the church is you and I. It's the people. And so the scriptures tell us that Paul the apostle wrote, and he said that we are professional clergy to build up the ecclesia for the work of the ministry. So who's to be doing the ministry? The Levite should have done something about this, but he was observing the example of his pastor. What's that say about our pastor's? What's that say about my profession? What's that say about those of us that grace a stage? Maybe we're a little too careless. Step on my own toes. Maybe we're just a little too apathetic. Maybe we don't want to really get into a squabble that's not our own. We have too many problems. Why would I want to borrow yours? We have too many things already in our lives that we need to attend to, too many irons in the fire already. Why should I invest another day in someone else's problems? And so the Levite was just simply doing what he saw his leader do. I kind of give him a little bit of a pass because he was simply just being a follower. But then Jesus uses this term of good Samaritan. And this would not typically be a neighbor to the Jews. The Samaritans, if you trace their lineage back, the Samaritans were a mixed breed. Initially, they were Hebrews who had been taken captive to Assyria. They had mixed with the other cultures. They had taken on and adapted the worship of other gods. And when they all came back together after an exile and then a regeneration, they were the ones that didn't really observe the true faith of Israel And so for years, for hundreds of years by this point, the Samaritans were those that were looked at as watered down versions of Jewish cousins. When you get right down to it, the Samaritans were actually distant relatives of the Jews, yet just with different practices different practices based upon the fact of what had been exposed to them in their life, based upon the fact that they had been taken captive and had mixed with other gods and had children in that foreign land. And those children were raised up a certain way to do a certain thing, to operate a certain way. And so they didn't really even know they were just doing what their ancestors had done. And this is why, hear me, when the Jews in the first century would look down their nose at the Samaritans, they were really looking down their nose at their own blood relatives. And this is why even to this day that racism is so ignorant. It really is. Because I remember a little children's verse in, in, in children's class at, at children's school. That, uh, children's church used to say, red, yellow, black, and white, we are all precious in God's sight. Now, is that true? According to the book, that's true. We were all made in the image and likeness of God. Whether your eyes have a little bit of a a shift to them or you're round in your eyes, whether your skin is darker or lighter, whether your hair is blonde or black or blue or purple, I don't care. You are made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, you are precious to God. There's something valuable and intrinsic in the fact that you are a human being. And when we trace it right back, we get into all these race discussions and race wars and things in America, and really there's only one race, it's the human race. Amen. That's why racism is so ignorant because people don't understand, they ignore the facts. And so this Samaritan, likely a Jew by lineage and bloodline was not considered to be a practicing and good Jew. And so in the lawyer's mind, He sets up this question to ask Jesus, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus says a good Samaritan came and helped him out. To the attorney in the story, this would have been a little bit offensive. You know why? Because according to the way he had always been raised, according to his lens by which he saw life, There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. All Samaritans were bad. It didn't matter what they'd ever done. All Samaritans were of the other side. They're not of my camp. Therefore, a Samaritan cannot be my neighbor because they don't talk like me. They don't walk like me. They don't go to synagogue like me. They don't vote like me. Therefore, they are not my neighbor. And so Jesus putting good in front of Samaritan was utterly offensive to this lawyer. Who should have helped out the guy? Well, the priest, certainly. The Levite certainly should have. But all the help came from the most unlikely source. Have you ever found yourself in a place in life where who you thought would come to your rescue never showed up? But lo and behold, someone who you didn't even expect offered you an encouragement, a lifeline, a little bit of help in your time of need. And this is exactly what Jesus is setting up right here. A good Samaritan in his mind would be like some of us hearing a good Muslim, a good Republican. We're in in election season, right? A good Democrat. It's awfully quiet in this church right now. (laughs) But we get in our minds that, well, if you're not like me, then you have to be bad in every possible way. There's nothing that we can really be neighborly about if we don't agree on everything, and that's a fallacy. That's a logical fallacy. Amen. Yes, we are in full swing of elections. And yes, you should be an informed voter. And if you need to understand the issues, we, we will help you. We, we have all kinds of resources to do that. There are voter guides out in the lobby. You can pick one of those up. But listen to me right now and hear me. Elections are not won on the right or the left. It is that very shrinking and small, persuadable middle of our two-party system in this country. And while I identify personally as a conservative and unashamedly and pro-life, here's what I realize, that I do not give allegiance. I do not pledge my trust and my hope and my faith and my allegiance in the donkey or the elephant, I give my allegiance to the lamb and that is all that can save America is the bloodstained banner of Jesus Christ. So regardless of where you stand politically, you have to understand this, there is a middle that we can and we should be influencing for the cause of Christ. They are our neighbors The people on the fringe are our neighbors. The people in the middle are our neighbors. And Jesus gives this example of this good Samaritan. This is challenging to the lawyer because he's never thought of it in terms like this before. He has never thought that there is a persuadable middle when it comes to any Samaritans before. But if you're going to Love like God loves. When your love is tested, then you have to have a default. You have to have a solid ground. Where do you go to when your love is tested? Well, what did Jesus do? We wear bracelets that say it, but we don't often practice WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, if you're going to think like God, you have to love like God. That means you cannot be limited by your politics, by your skin color, by the background of someone, by their status, or by their religious affiliation. If you're going to love like God, you need to pray a prayer like this. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. As I have tried, and it's tough, (laughs) to talk in dialogue with people who think differently than me, who vote differently than me, who have different positions on issues that I hold as core and convictional, as I talk with them over a cup of coffee, As I talk with them, instead of just sound bites, but I actually try to understand them, I realize every person has a story. There is a background. There is something that has led them all the way to the path that they're on today. I won't share her name. I had an email about a year and a half ago from a, a young lady, and she said, I've been watching your church online like what I see on the services. Looks like a place I'd like to come visit sometime. But before I do, I just need to know, where do you as a church stand on same-sex marriage? She hadn't gone to our website very thoroughly because it's on there. There is a statement on there. And it's not a mean, mad, angry statement. It's a biblical statement. It's a, a statement of redemption. But before I answered her question, I said, that is a great question how about you and I meet in the lobby some afternoon over a cup of coffee. I'd like to hear more about your story. To my surprise, she said, yes. We sat down, we had a cup of coffee. We talked, we, we got to know one another a little bit. And by the end of our conversation, she said, well, I don't think that this is probably the church for me and my wife, but I'm glad that you took the time to talk with me. I don't think I've ever met a Christian who would have talked to me like this before. Maybe a seed planted. It's no kudos to me, a pat on my back. But what it is, is a bridge to open up a dialogue and start actually having some conversation amongst some common ground, even when we have differences. Listen, we have never lived in a time where you know the differences of the neighbor that's sitting next to you in church right now, like we have today. It used to be a whole lot easier 20, 30 years ago before social media, you could come on in and think everybody in church believes just like you. Now you get to home, you start going through their social media and you're like, whoa, they believe that? Wow, shocker. There are people who have different opinions, different ideas, different functions, different kinds of of ways that they approach things. That doesn't make them enemies. What it makes them is mission fields. What it makes them is people who Jesus thought enough of that he died for them. And therefore, our love is being tested in how we deal with those who disagree. And a test is only a test when you have a choice. How you respond to those choices determines whether you pass or fail. Now, I'll tell you, I've failed some other tests. I have been that religious zealot who quickly had the the retort and I could find it in the Bible and I'm going to, I'm just going to show them the verses and where they're wrong. I've I've been that guy too. And what I found is that's not very effective. That's not very attractional. It's not entreating. It doesn't yield very good fruit and tests. They're not fun. When you're tested or when you're preparing for a test, you know that sometimes you have to say no to something that is really just fine, good to do, but you can't run with the crowd on Friday night when you have a test on Saturday morning. You have to study. You have to practice. You have to understand what the questions are going to be. And love for God, love for you, love for self and others, it causes us to deny those urges, those impulses of the flesh, those quick retorts when we know we just have the right answer, but something restrains us on the inside to say, no, maybe I need to listen a little more. Maybe I need to take a page out of the book of James to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If in this political season right now, you find yourself just tense and angry and ready to pounce on anybody's response, then maybe you need to check your own heart because the scripture says, be quick to listen, understand where is someone coming from? Are there some flaws in my own argument? Am I basing something not upon the word of God, but upon personal opinion? Because if we base it on the word of God, we'll never go wrong. But if we base it upon preferences, then we're subject to error. But before we get too self-condemned, too loathsome in our thinking, we have to ask, are we loophole seekers? Are we always looking for who's my neighbor? Are we loophole people? And I would submit to you that by human nature, we are loophole people. We all want to find that way to exonerate ourselves. Or as the scripture said, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. It wasn't good enough that he had the right answer. He wanted a double pat on the back for the right answer. He wanted to drive his point home so well that he took a sledgehammer to nail that nail. But that is our human condition even Jesus himself. In one glimpse of one moment, we can find that in the humanity of Jesus, don't believe these arguments that people say, well, Jesus wasn't really human. He was all divine. He was just God. There's there's no way I can do like Jesus because he was God. Well, he was God. But here is the miracle of the incarnation. He was all God and he was all man. 100% divine, 100% human. And in Jesus' humanity, we get this glimpse when he's in the garden, and he asked his father this, knowing that he's going to the cross, knowing that he is to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin, he asked his father this, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Jesus in the garden is looking for a loophole. Now, you can check me on my theology later. That's okay, email me. Email me at Baird at newfreedomchurch.com. <laughs> All your problems and all your questions. Jesus said, if it's possible, I really don't want to go through this. I'd like to find another way. Is there another roundabout? Is there some other way to get out of this? And then he follows it up when divinity shows up through his humanity and says, nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. There are some times when you have the right eloquent word to say when you have the retort, when you could easily fillet them with your mouth and that check comes in your spirit that says, nevertheless, just let it rest. Just let it simmer. Just let it go. Let God do the work. We are just people of planting seeds. We water the seed, but God gives the increase. It's up to God to do the harvest. So why did Jesus go to these lengths to have this conversation, to entertain the questions of this attorney? Why did Jesus do this? It was all for one reason, it was for love. Because Jesus, even knowing that he was walking into a trap, loved the lawyer enough to entertain his question. Jesus loved the lawyer enough to demonstrate to him that the ones that he thought were the paid religious professionals, the elite, the servants in the house of God, those closest to the things of God in his day and in his era can even miss it. And yet someone else come alongside who's unexpected can be the one to pour in the oil and the wine. How are you doing with the love test? How are you doing with looking at others through the eyes of mercy and grace? Sometimes the most difficult person that we have in our lives to love is us. Maybe you need to find a little bit in your heart search to love you enough to come into a love relationship with the maker of you. If you have never come into a relationship with your maker, if you have never known the sweetness and the love of God as is poured out and demonstrated through Jesus Christ, then today is your day. I'm going to pray a prayer as we close. And if you pray anything like this, if you pray this prayer, this is an activation of being a participant in the new creation with God. I opened up telling you that the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And now... Mercy is preaching and he is saying, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For with the mouth confession is made to salvation with the heart one believes. And so if you're ready with boldness to take that step to love yourself enough to come into a love relationship with God, then say with this, dear God, you can say it out loud. I encourage everyone who will to say it out loud. You might just encourage your neighbor, dear God, I come to you today just like I am. I'm a sinner. I repent. I change my mind. I change my direction. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. That he rose on the third day. And because he lives, I can have eternal life. What must I do for eternal life? Love God. Love others as I love myself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.